I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. And I think the real win for us is that whether you grew up eating this food or not, it was taking you back to a happy place. And I think that that was one of the bigger wins. And I think it really does show if what you're doing comes from love and soul and happiness, that it's going to connect with people at that level. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. Chef Ray Garcia is known for far more than his successful restaurants. He created an entirely new category of cuisine, but being a culinary pioneer isn't without its difficulties. And today we discuss how challenging his community's perceptions around food created a landmark restaurant. So the path that led to me becoming a chef was, you know, a bit, I wouldn't say bumpy, but it was definitely unexpected. I didn't have that kind of romantic story that a lot had. I was five years old and I was in my parents' restaurant and it just wasn't really in me. It wasn't until I went to college and I had to kind of fend for myself and start cooking my own food and started working in restaurants that those two things came together. So I've been in restaurants since 94, 95. So it's been almost 30 years at this point. And like I said, when I went to college, it was randomly assigned that in my dorm, I shared a room with somebody who's now a two Michelin starred chef. And his path was just like I had explained is, you know, he grew up in the restaurant all his life. He had 20 years of sushi making skill already under his belt almost and coming to college. I know if you do the math, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but he was already a genius at what he did. And he had this love and passion for food that was contagious. And for somebody like me, who up until that point, my exposure to food was limited. It was just whatever was being cooked in my house or my grandparents' home or friends. So once I met him, it just kind of like opened a whole new door and being a hands-on and curious person and also been a sort of an adrenaline junkie, like this business just fit me perfectly. And so you start working in kitchens at a professional level, eventually at a high level, but there's a huge difference between working in someone's restaurant and wanting to own and operate your own. What did the path to broken Spanish look like? So when I started in restaurants, I started in the front of the house and I did every job imaginable as a busser and a bar back and and everything else. I served and then tapped into my passion for cooking and started leaning into that. And for about 15 years, I really kind of focused on the higher end of cooking, a bit of like fine dining and really kind of 
pushing myself, you know, those 14, 15 hour days, six days a week, never really stopping in search of kind of that perfection, I guess, or at the very least survival, live to kind of fight another day because a lot of restaurants back in the day, especially the goal was to do something that was nearly impossible every single day with so many different forces internally and externally working against you. And so what I did is I found myself in a position where I was getting better and better at being a cook, not so much a chef, but better and better at being a cook. I was pretty lousy chef because I had some, I can say, bad examples on how to manage others and how to treat people. But just at the end of the day, what was happening was that everything that I was doing was just based off of either repetition, fear, but there was not really a connection for me. So even though I had a full lexicon of recipes and I could braise well, saute well, work a grill, make fresh pasta, do all these things, for the most part, I wasn't culturally connected to it. It didn't remind me of anything. There was no feeling besides like memorization that really was behind my food. And then when I got to that point where I could start choosing what was on the menu, choosing how I spent my time, you know, that's when I transitioned into food that I loved and food that I just didn't remember how to cook from a recipe book, but food that had feeling to me. And that's when you decided to open your own restaurant. How did that decision take place? I mean, that's, it's a ballsy move. Yeah, I think that's one of, uh, you know, one of the decisions that I was probably to use it loosely, uh, encouraged to. I along the way, I, I came up with a partner, very ambitious guy. We were both working at a hotel where I think I had kind of become a bit more comfortable than I wanted to. And I think for him, it maybe wasn't the right environment for him to continue to grow. So we decided, hey, let's go open up a restaurant. I really found my love and passion in that Mexican Mexican American space of telling my story through food. And we jumped. It was funny once everything happened and it's that moment I'm like, oh shit, we actually do we have to do this now. What's he's looking at me like, what's the menu gonna be? I'm like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I know we're cooking Mexican food, you know, in air quotes, but what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that feel like? And for me, I started kind of removing what it didn't look like, what it didn't feel like. I didn't want it to be the same as all the other experiences that were happening. We were building this restaurant because we wanted to be a place where, unfortunately, we never really get a chance to go there and enjoy it. But it was like the model of like, this is a spot that I want to be there and enjoy from the guest experience on arrival to cocktails, wine, the food, just the overall vibe of the restaurant. And I think we were successful with uh, doing that at Broken Spanish. Was there any concern? So when we conceptualized the concept of pro and proper, I wanted to do elevated Southern food in the same way that you wanted to do elevated Mexican cuisine. But I worried. I worried about the price point going into it. I worried about trying to elevate cuisine that in my case is seen as peasant food, right? And so the idea of selling a bowl of gumbo for $28 or $36, it was repugnant to some people. And I knew that it was going to turn a lot of people off. But I was trying to show people my heritage in a new way. And were there concerns for you? Because I know that, you know, a lot of people look at Mexican food and they say, how much is somebody willing to pay for a taco? 
I don't know that there was a lot of concern going into it, but it became a huge concern once we <laughs> opened. I would say that was by far the biggest challenge was getting people to understand the idea that it's for better or worse. And it's not just with, with Mexican food. It's probably you had that experience with, with Southern cuisine or maybe it's Filipino or Vietnamese or, or other cuisines that people I think have wrongly associated with cheap or haven't assigned enough value to it. When the reality is we were using just as good of ingredients as restaurants that are charging twice as much. And I always say this pork belly dish at a French restaurant or someplace like that, that would be looked at as like, no problem, $23 for a pork belly appetizer. But if you put it on a tortilla, all of a sudden you get a fraction of that because it becomes a taco. And so it was that fine line of like, okay, yes, you are eating a tamal. And we want to kind of showcase every aspect of it from the incredible corn into the lamb, to the sauce, to the technique, to everything that goes into it. But there still is a lot of resources devoted to it. And when people would see the word tamal or taco or tostada or whatever it is, they would already say like, why would I pay $16 for that, $18 for this? So, you know, that was a big, big fight and still continues to be. I think I had the benefit of going into this with a sort of a band of brothers who are all kind of experiencing something similar at the same time. And that was, you know, Carlos Salgado down in Taco Maria, Wes Avila, who was just really hitting his stride at Guerrilla, and then Eddie Ruiz, along with our Masa partner at Masienda. And we were all kind of like scratching our heads, calling each other, texting like, what is going on? Like people would walk into broken Spanish, look at the menu and like, you don't have a chips and salsa. Like what the fuck kind of Mexican restaurant is this? And like, well, it's, we just don't have chips and salsa. Like it just, it doesn't mean that because we don't have chips and salsa, we're not a Mexican restaurant. It was just something that I'm hoping over time gets better. And we were seeing that as broken Spanish was growing, that there was a lot more people who were, I guess, getting it. But yeah, that was a really big challenge for me and, and a lot of us in that space. Well, you know, and I look back on those times and you look at like that Alta California food movement and you and the guys you mentioned, like you're the fathers of that movement. And so on the outside, you think, man, how amazing that would have been. But I always hearken back to that old phrase, like pioneers get arrows and settlers get land. Whenever <laughs> you're the first to do something it's painful. And what I would assume came out of that was number one, an unapologetic belief that what you're doing is the right path for you. And then number two, and I've seen this throughout your career, you're really good at telling your story and you're really good at making your argument to the public in a way that resonates with them. How did those skills evolve over time? I think when you're in that circumstance, you just have to make a choice. Like either you're going to give up and say, okay, the time is not right. We need to focus on making dollars. Like we need to go for the low hanging fruit. You know, how hard would it be to put chips and salsa on the menu? You know, like guacamole, who doesn't love guacamole? But we had to just stick to, no, this is what broken Spanish is. We're not assholes about it. We're not telling you that guacamole is a bad thing. We're not trying to tortilla shame you or chip shame you if you, you come in and, and, and ask for that. Like, that's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to inform you of other options. And I think that 
everyone buying into it, at least internally, was the where's the first step? Because I think we've all been to a restaurant where you may have an issue with something on the menu or with you know, an aspect and you know, the server's like, oh, I know. I told the manager last week, like they don't get it fixed or nobody likes that dish. I don't know why it's still on the menu. And I've had that experience at plenty of places. And I think that's just a matter of people just not really buying what they're selling on the front of the house staff and even in the kitchen. And I think it was key that we all wholeheartedly believe that this was the only way that it was gonna happen. And if we wanted to elevate people's expectations of what Mexican food can be, if we wanted to reshape what people think of as a tortilla and reintroduce that idea, it wasn't going to stop by, you know, it wasn't going to happen by us stopping at the first P&L and us looking like, oh my God, we're paying 27 cents a tortilla. Like that's insane compared to 1.5 cents if we just went with what everyone else was using. And that didn't include the labor for cooking our corn, grinding our corn, pressing the corn, and then the waste at the end of the day for those that wasn't used because we would start fresh every day. And so there's mission behind it. I mean, at one point, to quote you, you said, you know, when Broken Spanish hit five years ago, we were talking about how to cement it as an institution like Patina, Moza, Spago. How did that manifest in the day-to-day operations? Because again, there are financial pressures. And what we do initially to make these things successful long-term typically doesn't translate to short-term financial success. Even though that was like an ambitious idea or could be an ambitious idea early on, I think it's important to set that marker five, 10 years, whatever it is down the road so that you know, like, okay, well, where is my North Star? Like, What is it that I'm actually trying to do here? Because when you're a chef, a restaurateur, you know, a bus or whatever it is, you're just trying to get through your shift. You're trying to get through the rush. You're trying to sell the product that's in your walk-in or, or whatever your business might be. And without having that point of saying, this is where we want to go, it was really hard to keep us all focused. So that idea that we wanted to become an institution really came more about like impact, having an impact, not just as a chef, but as a restaurant and having a living legacy. Because even when we were opening up Broken Spanish, it was kind of puzzling for me that in a city like Los Angeles, with such a strong Mexican, Mexican American, or even broader Latin culture, that the contribution in sort of the mainstream restaurant space was non-existent. And for a city that touted itself or still does as, you know, being one of the most diverse, it's not the same as, you know, diversity is not the same as access or representation. And it became a point where like that bothered me as part of a mission. Like, no, there's this great food. Some people are eating it before the restaurant opens as family meal and people are bringing in tamales, they're sharing pupusas, they're sharing whatever was cooked at home. And then it would sort of be like a hard stop. Okay, now let's go make some money. You know, we'll keep your culture, your stories, your voice, your expression for before the doors open. And for Broken Spanish, I was looking at it to be the one place that I would could identify in the city, apart from the other guys that I had mentioned, where people could come in and learn the skill of working with uh, with corn and turning it into tortillas. 
learn dishes and traditions of whether it was their heritage or not, but a culture that wasn't being represented. And I think just that idea and that notion of doing that connected with so many people beyond just those who grew up like I did Mexican-American in Los Angeles, because we were cooking something from our heart. We were being sincere and we were trying to connect with people on a level that you know, was really more about put them to reflect on their life moments, on things that made them happy. I think one of the bigger surprises when we first opened up when, you know, we'd make a dish that was very much a, a Mexican dish and people would say, oh, this reminds me of my grandmother. Like she was Polish and she would make this dish or this reminds me of college or a vacation. And I think the real win for us is that whether you grew up eating this food or not, it was taking you back to a happy place. And I think that that was one of the bigger wins. And I think it really does show if what you're doing comes from love and soul and happiness, that it's going to connect with people at that level. Seeing what was possible and going from good to great, you're going to learn something. Hearing different perspectives from different people in the group have inspired ideas or concepts that I've used since then that there's no way I would have ever come up with on my own. You pull it out of this as much as possible. When the well yeah. is dry, you pour a bucket in there and then tell us, now get it out. We could have been just as lost as when we started if all we got was, here's how to do it, go. These folks are independent restaurateurs, just like you. But they have one massive advantage that you don't. They have a proven plan. I'm launching my next restaurant marketing mastermind that brings together 12 owners and operators looking to massively scale revenue by working with me and by working with each other. This mastermind is so effective, we offer a money-back guarantee. So if you're interested in scaling your restaurant's revenue with a program that is guaranteed to work, apply today at restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. Again, that's restaurantmarketingmastermind.com. You might think being on the line and filling those tickets is the thing you need to do for your restaurant, but every burger you make is a marketing call or video that you didn't make to drive more sales into your restaurant to make things better. Tactically, if you were talking to another restaurateur and you were to look back over your time at Broken Spanish, offering advice, what do you think you guys did really well that led to the success of the restaurant that you would recommend others do? I think the biggest thing, and then people throw the word around a lot, is culture. And it's kind of the culture of internally, like, who do we want to be? Who are we here for? How do we connect with them? Like, how do we grow? How do we support each other? I grew up in a restaurant business that was not supportive whatsoever. And so it was kind of like the cream rises to the top and you just have to fight, fight, fight to get there. And that was not the culture that I wanted to instill in broken Spanish. You know, I wanted to instill something that was very collaborative amongst the chefs, between the service team and the culinary team, with the guests, bring them in and invite them in as part of the story. And I think that was our biggest success. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you would think that everybody listening would be waiting for a marketing hack or we priced our menu this way or we did this or we did that. And it comes down to culture, which I think largely in our industry is something that people decide they're going to pay attention to once everything else is in line. 
Once I'm profitable, then I'll focus on culture. Once we make X amount of dollars, once we're this level of busy, once I'm only working this many hours a week, then I'll focus on culture. Is that something that you see changing in the folks that you talk to and the conversations you have? Yeah, I definitely think that that approach is changing a bit. It's hard, especially when you're in big cities with big rents and you have to pay the bigger wages because you want to be able to provide a decent living wage. You want to have your staff come in and not distracted or not exhausted from their second or third job. And that's an ongoing challenge to get people to buy into that because their pain is real. Their struggle is real. And that was one of the harder things with Broken Spanish when we closed is having to have that conversation and most of them one-on-one and personally just saying, I'm sorry, you don't have a job anymore. Like, what can I do to help you? Like, let me tell you what I'm doing to try to get us to the next restaurant. But I understand that doesn't help you with dinner tonight or, you know, school supplies tomorrow. And that's rough. And I think if you don't kind of have an idea where you're already sort of planning on taking care of your staff and making that part of the culture, then it's not something that you can ever replicate or scale from. And when Broken Spanish had closed and we did a pop-up, you know, or, or sort of a residency, it was about six months, I was able to pick up the phone and 90% of the people who we had laid off or had to have that conversation with were like, yes, absolutely. Like we want to come back, whatever it is. Let me know, chef, when you're opening, we'll be there. And I think that is because of that culture that we built. We didn't just put up a sign one day and saying, sorry, we're closed, you know, lock the door. And that's how our staff found out. Like We kept everyone informed. Every day I was having a conversation with my GM and bar director and all my sous chefs and all the managers saying like, this is what's happening. Like, realistically, we need to hit this threshold because if not, then we're going to have to remove this person from the schedule and have them part of it. And they knew that 100% I was doing everything that I could and my partner as well to keep people employed and not disrupt their life. And it's now been helpful for me as I try to grow, replicate, and scale to be able to have that, I guess, skill and also reputation that I'm going to be there for our team. I want to talk about now, and I want to talk about what you have going on in the future. But before we do, I don't want to glaze over BS Taqueria. And the reason being, I made a very similar choice. We went from a bar in Hollywood to fine dining and then dipped our toe in the fast casual water with South City Fried Chicken. Why did you choose to pivot tiers of dining, parlaying your success from Broken Spanish into a more casual atmosphere? So the funny thing is a lot of people think that that was kind of the path, but BS Taqueria actually opened up first. Um, Really? Yeah. So BS Taqueria opened, I was crazy and I opened them up, you know, within four months of each other, but because we were taking on two projects and the redesign and the construction on BS Taqueria just happened more quickly. We opened up BS Taqueria before we opened up Broken Spanish. And I always kind of refer to them as sort of siblings that had a similar upbringing, but just like a very different way 
of expression. So the corn for the masa was exactly the same. The pork that we were using at the two restaurants, you know, the approach, the passion, they were in line. So when I look at BS Taqueria, it was more of a hybrid between a traditional kind of taqueria experience and a restaurant. And it was sort of that stepping stone to opening up Broken Spanish a bit more successfully. So the pandemic hits, you close, and obviously it was devastating for you, me, for so many people out there. But there's also an opportunity in that, right? To say, what do I want to do next? If I could change it all and start all over again, which we all could and did, how would I do it differently? You then did a six-month pop-up of Broken Spanish, but your first brick and mortar out the gate was Viva in Las Vegas. Why Las Vegas? Well, so Las Vegas was something that I had already been working on prior to the pandemic. And I'm very appreciative that, you know, that project was able to continue through everything. And I have had a kind of entrepreneurial spirit about me since I was 14 years old, washing other people's cars in my front lawn from my dad's work and doing construction in the summer and doing whatever I could to hustle. So I always knew that I wanted to continue to grow. And I was also knew that there was parts of my personality, you know, the style of operating being very hands-on that I didn't want restaurant number two to be in, say, New York or someplace they would take a day to get there, a day to get back. I didn't have connections, you know, yet in, in the market, labor challenges, suppliers, etc. So as my partner and I started having discussions, the opportunity came up in Vegas, which for me made perfect sense because he's based in Las Vegas. So he's, you know, already received 12 texts this morning about the churros and the steak tacos and everything else that we might want to sort of look at it and revisit if there's any sort of challenge or something I want to be a part of in a positive way. It's a 45 minute flight or a four hour drive out there. So it still kind of keeps me connected. Plus, I think Vegas is a great market because there is so much connection with Los Angeles. So that was kind of the idea of the location. And then for the concept, I think when I look at Broken Spanish, I look at it as a place where we're inviting you sort of into a relative's home. Maybe it's your aunt or your grandmother or uncle, and there's kind of a connection to culture and history and a story is being told with and through the food. And when I look at Viva, I feel like it's like, okay, you've had dinner with mom and it's like the holiday or anything. Now like I'm going to go to a friend's house who just is a really great cook, throws a good party, makes good cocktails. And that's kind of what Viva is. And those are sort of the two coexist, at least in my mind. What's quality control look like? I mean, it's hard enough to ensure standards when you work in the same restaurant every day. How do you do it when it's 45 minutes away by plane? I think you have to acknowledge ahead of time that that's going to be a challenge. I think you have to choose your, like I did like my partner, uh, you know, very carefully as somebody who can be actively involved and share similar expectations and standards. And I think you just have to set up expectations, be very clear about them, and then find ways to inspect what you expect. And now it's a bit easier because 
digitally, you can check in on numbers, you have access to cameras, you get constant feedback from guests on a nightly basis. You know, I wake up and I can see what 15 to 20 people had to say about their experience the night before. So I just had to become better at running it remotely. I've had to work on being a little less of a control freak and letting the people who I put into their roles do their job. And how does that relate to working on your business versus in it? Because you're almost forced to work on it since you can't work in it, right? Yeah. And that's the thing is I started in this business really never with the key goal of owning. It was just learn to cook, get better at cooking, you know, and then I became a chef and then sort of a business person. And now kind of transitioning into restaurateur, entrepreneur, and that's what's exciting for me. But the biggest daily challenge is for me to try to stay focused on my best and highest use because I didn't come in here to this business looking at like, okay, what technology can help me be more efficient? What marketing do I need to implement? What sort of connections do I need to make in and out of the market to make my life easier? So most of the time, I would much rather be scrambling eggs, cooking fish, you know, like tying meats, doing things like that. And I'll occasionally like allow myself that luxury of like, oh, I'm going to go to Viva and, you know, half the night I'm going to stand there like flipping tortillas because there's something kind of therapeutic and relaxing and grounding about doing that. But I still have to realize that that's no longer my role. It's something that I've had to, you know, challenges reconciling emotionally and with my ego and with other people's perceptions of me, which I think as a chef and you're kind of taught like you need to be there all the time. You need to be, you know, chained to the stove and people are coming to see you. And the reality is if, if you're successful, then you've built a system in which you're not the best person at doing the tortillas, you're not the best person at cooking the fish, you're not the best person at, at scrambling the eggs, and you have to kind of be okay with that. Let's talk about Astrid. What was the inspiration behind the culinary concept, and how do you view your role there? Yeah, so Astrid, I think a lot of people... And a lot of the lead up to it was like, okay, it's not broken Spanish. It's not, okay, okay, sure, sure, sure. But what kind of broken Spanish just is are you going to have? Like, it's, <laughs> not, it's, not, it's not broken Spanish. We're not going to do broken Spanish. Like, okay, I get it. Like, do you have tortillas? I was like, okay, you guys don't get it. And for me as a chef and kind of like one who tells a story through food, as so many of us do, I think our cooking is, or my cooking is more about experiences and life experiences and not just a certain ethnicity or culture. So for me, cooking California cuisine is just as much part of growing up in the business as eating bologna tacos for lunch was a part of me growing up as a kid in, in Los Angeles. And so I like having an opportunity to show both or multiple sides of what excite and interest me. And Astrid does that. It's located in the Walt Disney Concert Hall, which is a former patina location. Have we come full circle? Has that intention that you had all those years ago manifested? Is this your opportunity to create an institution? I mean, potentially. I'm not trying to step back or step away from that being an option. But humbly, we opened six months ago. There are challenges operating 
right now in Los Angeles and we're doing some really good food. But I think that there's just like when before you open a restaurant, people say, oh, what's your signature dish? And the reality is like, well, whatever people buy is going to be my signature dish. So of course, we're going to work hard to make it an institution and something that's there for a long time. But we're still in the beginning phases of trying to connect with a new location, connect with the market and really kind of push ourselves. What does success look like moving forward? And how has that been impacted by the pandemic? I would never say that the pandemic was a good thing or positive. I think it harmed beyond our business, but definitely our business to some ways that are almost irreparable. But for me, it was an opportunity to really kind of reset and do it in a way that professionally and personally. And I think on the financial end, I told myself I'd never want to go through this again. Like I have to make adjustments. I have to make changes. And for me, it was having less eggs in one basket. It was diversifying my time of what I'm involved in, looking at opportunities for consumer packaged goods, for other licensing deals, for other markets to be a part of, reopening Broken Spanish, ensuring the success of Astrid, growing Viva as a brand. Those are all ways that I see you know, myself moving forward, being successful, because I think if the pandemic didn't happen, for better or worse, I would just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper into broken Spanish. And that can be a lonely path. The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? Yes, there's a lot that is not right with this business. And we could probably do another few hours of going through that. But I think that there are some trends that I'm seeing and I would love to see continue. And I think the biggest one is being collaborative. And the pandemic really kind of helped with that because it's sort of like, you know, if you're carrying a bag of groceries and they all just fall out over the floor and then you see people, at least good people coming together and help you pick something up and put it back together. And I feel like there was that kind of spirit in the restaurant industry where as soon as everyone got that big gut punch, weeks later, there were calls at seven in the mornings, you know, at least our time and, you know, independent restaurant coalition coming together. It's like, okay, how do we save restaurants? Like what is going on? How can I help you? How can you help me? What do you think of this different platform? Like, how are you connecting with more guests? And it's something that unfortunately coming out of necessity and disaster, but I don't want to see that go away. I want to still be able to pick up the phone or have somebody call me and say, man, I need somebody for like service tonight. Can you spare somebody for like four hours? I'm not trying to poach your cooks. Like I need somebody, I need help. And there's a lot more camaraderie that's developed over the last year or two that I think is just the starting point because with that, that's how we're going to solve bigger issues. It's not going to be one chef taking a very strong stand on something that impacts the economy or the environment or anything else is going to be all of us together working on it and saying, okay, I've got you. I understand you. I hear you. Let's work on this together to make some real progress. For more on Chef Ray Garcia and his upcoming projects, visit chefraygarcia.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, 
go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.